0: So, yeah, for those, for those who've seen these before, hopefully what they'll, they'll realise is this is an exciting time for us because it's our first uh, four-person chat. Um, and we're not sure how it's going to work. And we're going to try and sort of uh, – I'm going to try and police it uh, so we're not all talking at the same time. Um, the internet connection seems to be struggling a bit more with, this with four of us than it normally does with three of us. So apologies in advance if, uh, if we pause or, or if there's a bit of um, a delay but I'm sure it will be worth it and tonight's discussion is um, it's manual therapy or you know joint mobilizations joint manipulations and and maybe if we have time depending on how we're doing we'll talk about soft tissue as well that might that might form a part too so loads of questions came in uh, I think it proves it's an, an interesting topic I know the reason we've got these two guys here is because they they you know in their respective countries they they teach it a lot they're, they're in the position of educating it so we thought who better to sort of <laughs> Just talk it out, uh, you know, and we want to talk about the, the elephant in the room that is the evidence base or possibly lack, lack thereof. Uh, we want to talk about its clinical applications, the whens, the when nots, the, the whys, the outcomes, etc. and then we'll just kind of go from there. And obviously, as always, Craig's going to pitch in uh, with, with the live comments as they, as they come in as well. So I'll, I'll start the ball rolling, if I may, and uh, we'll talk about <clears throat> the difference between mobilizations and manipulations which is a question that, that a lot of people actually have, have emailed. And asked. <coughs> I'm right in saying one of you does quite, quite a bit more mobs and the other quite a bit more manips. Uh, and I think if I've got it the right way around, Linane, you don't do manips. Is that correct? Uh, so correct. maybe you want to start by, um, maybe if you could talk to us about what, what a joint mobilization is and then afterwards Ted could come in and talk about what a uh, joint manipulation is.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, whilst I don't generally do manipulation, it's been part of my training, <clears throat> but over the years, for me, I've favoured mobilisation work. Um, and if you wish, the the key difference is if you imagine there are five levels of applied force you can place upon the tissues of a joint, um, taking them in an oscillatory manner from grade one through to grade five. Grade one to four would fall within the mobilisation level, and grade five would be considered to be manipulation level. Uh, Grades one to four means that you take it from the very beginning of the joint available range. Grade four means you're getting towards the very end of the range but you're not pushing it any further into its physiological uh, range, full full physiological range. And so manipulation would be that very very end level which requires a, a, a thrust component to it. Whereas mobilization is very gently an oscillatory movement with a degree of force, but not one that's actually a thrust. Um, each of the two techniques have their own particular goals. So that, that's that. In terms of minutes, it's not something I, I do. I did have to do my own thumb recently, which was quite interesting, um, particularly because it was a very painful thumb. But uh, other than that, no, I don't do that. <clears throat> so maybe Ted. In the UK, Dave Ashley would be the guy to, to head up on that one. So I don't want to make more of a
2: fool of myself
1: than that. Gone. on. Tends more than a guy, I think.
2: <laughs> yes, and it uh, sounds like um, uh, in you describing uh, the Maitland's uh, method or the Maitland's chart of those uh, grades of mobilisation. Uh, I love uh, Maitland's uh, the way he uh, articulated it. In that, um, in the, what helped me really understand the difference between the two is mobilisation is the application of a passive force at a joint's end passive range of movement, <clears throat> at a speed and force that the patient could overcome. And yep. uh, so, and, and uh, this is really on that uh, five-grade uh, um, scale. This is usually around uh, grade four. Um, whereas manipulation, it's the application of a high-velocity force, so it happens very quickly. But the, it's, it's a passive force, at, again, at the joint's passive limit, at a speed that the patient could not overcome. So basically it's all over before um, you know, they could react or uh, do anything to oppose that force. And so yes, it is about speed, uh, but I think the important thing is that uh, manipulation has uh, the therapeutic uh, benefit or the application of that force, while it does involve uh, speed, it's still within the joint's capabilities so it's at the paraphysiological limits uh, but not beyond them and that's but uh, because it's right adjacent to it that's where the risk uh, you know comes in where if you go too far then you may you run the risk of uh, damaging the joint uh, and i think one of the great um, advantages of uh, the high-velocity forces is the neurophysiological response. So we get a lot uh, more stimulation of particularly type 3 mechanoreceptors in response when we apply a high-velocity force. Um, but there's, there's always a, a bit of mystery and often a lot of theatre uh, about uh, using manipulation. And, uh, maybe you see if the audio goes here, but uh, I will just uh, d- double-check that I've envisioned. Watch this and usually in a room when you're teaching manipulation you get that noise that, oh my god it's not it doesn't cause arthritis it's just a, a release of well the theory is a release of uh, some of the uh, hydrogen gas within synovial fluid uh, and particularly with patients sometimes they will think oh you know you're doing something harmful hmm. uh, the analogy I'll use is imagine a suction cap on a window you stick it on and then you're pulling the tension and uh, when you pop it off, it's that rapid change of uh, pressures difference uh, from inside the suction cap to the outside. That's literally what uh, happens with synovial joint. You get that rapid change and you get that noise that happens. Just the noise. The great thing is that cavitation effect stimulates synovial fluid production. So particularly for arthritic joints and joints that you want to improve uh, the lubricant in uh, within the joint. uh, That's where that's the big advantage. But uh, uh, typically, in my clinical practice, I will mobilise joints, and that's where I get all my um, qualitative feedback. And then where I feel the restriction or the hydraulic tension in the joint, I'll apply that high-velocity force uh, to generate that uh, release, in a, uh, I suppose, as quickly uh, and as effective as possible. There you go. Lovely. Said. Lovely. Lovely. Beautiful. Um, so...
0: Because we've got well, we got we got so much to get through. What we'll probably do is rather than ask you both for your opinion on all the questions, we'll probably just divvy them up. And if one of you's got something they're really desperate to to add, then obviously do. Um, but let's just keep. We'll, we'll come to the evidence in a minute because that's the bit that I think we all like to speak about. And and and. Uh, the, like i said like i said earlier the elephant in the room let's talk about the, the clinical applications first so uh you know when when do we do this uh and also when do we not i mean one of you whoever one of you can take when and one of you can take when not that might be the easiest way to do it uh, uh, Ian, do you want to start?
1: yeah um <clears throat> take take whatever one you want yeah i'll, go, I'll, dealer, I'll, I'll take a little choice. bit of a look at the when um i think in, at one level, the awareness what you're presented with first of all, what's presenting to you what's the you know, what kind of condition you might be dealing with um, so any time that I might want to address a situation whereby there's a limitation of joint movement uh, that isn't um, a risky situation uh, <laughs> such as somebody who's had a a crush injury uh, you wouldn't want to necessarily be involved in doing something with them. But if somebody's got a limitation of joint movement because of an injury that's healed, if you wish, or somebody who's, who's in a, I would tend to say, subacute stage rather than an acute stage, where you can use mobilization, work on them, I'd be happy to, to work in those situations to try and improve quality and whatever available range, improvement I can gain with that. But also working in, in mobilizations on that level, allowing me to... Get some stimulation of synovial fluid being released from within the synovium, and also it can also help in terms of reducing some of the pain by gaining movement back in there. So if I've got somebody with pain that I can mobilise a joint on without risk, then that can help reduce pain and enable movement. Of more recent years, um, I've been using um, very gentle <coughs> mobilisation techniques uh, under a level of traction in order to try and get a large, afferent feedback into the nervous system. And it's an area that particularly interests me, but I've been using it quite a lot in people who would be classified as perhaps having a, a muscle guarding component to their injury um, and who have not managed to get anything like a great success for themselves elsewhere and through other means. I'm not saying it's a wonderful thing, but over the years working very gently with those people using mobilization techniques, I've managed to find a number of people who've responded to that and significant muscle guarding problems have actually managed to reduce. uh, Now, whether that's what I'm doing, whether it's because it's their lucky day and they got better, I don't know, but that's an area where I use it as well. Um, So basically addressing injuries that can be treated using joint mobilization to improve quality of range of movement and then certainly looking at some of the chronic, long-term conditions I've been using it on recently the last few years, and trying to catalogue those uh, has been a helpful thing for me. don't know if that helps to give some idea. Other areas, um, people who've got digits, you know, when you've got the nice little hammering and clawing on the toe, using certain techniques to try and enable the the joints and the toe to become more flexible. uh, That's been a useful way to do things. Uh, Neuromas, more dead cashless area, but I do find using joint mobilisations, uh, can help reduce something of the discomfort on some of them, I guess, depending on the size and if if, the, if it's going to respond to that kind of work anyway. It's not going to be a miracle cure for neuromas, at least from, from, from the mobilization point of view. I think Dave's got some good stuff on the manipulation side of it. Mm-hmm. Does that help to answer some of the question? Or?
2: Yes. Ooh, 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 ooh. Can I speak? Yep. Can I speak? Yep. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. So um, I want to go, uh, go. kind of uh, take the camera back a little bit uh, and think about what the physiological objective um, with mobilization and and manipulation for that matter, a joint mobilization. My key objective, and particularly when we're dealing with the foot and the ankle, which is just laden with so many uh, collagenous structures, you've got the, the capsules, the ligaments, the tendons. I see the key objective as being able to uh, improve the range of motion in hypomobile joints that have come about because of connective tissue restrictions, and this has come about because of the, the collagen cross linkages. Uh, literally, when um, let's go back to our physiology uh, university days where we learned about Davis's law, and uh, in Davis's law we've got um, the Ligaments, soft tissues, when they're put under tension, will gradually elongate. But if they're not under tension or if they're in a lax state, they will gradually shorten. And uh, we use the expression in our trainings, connective tissues always adapt to their shortest functional length. And, uh, I mean, we know it in in lay terms as the use it or lose it um, cliché. So if if we have a uh, a joint, the classic HAV and the uh, AB ducted hallux, and that joint is kept in this position, the tissues are going to adapt to their shortest functional length, according to Davis's law. So particularly the capsule and the collateral uh, ligaments on the uh, lateral side of the first MP joint will gradually shorten. So with mobilization manipulation techniques, you're literally going to be tearing them apart to release that so the body can then adapt and heal and restore in that position. And the, the key thing here is that the tearing apart, physiologically, that's literally what happens. This is where sometimes the risk of if you try and do too much too soon, uh, you can run into trouble. So um, with that uh, release of collagenous uh, cross linkages, that's when you can lead to improvement in joint range of motion over a long over the long term, and when I talk about long term, research is very clear that uh, collagen cells to turn over, the old cells to replace with new healthy cells, Uh, Kier et al. in uh, uh, Sweden, Scandinavian country, um, found uh, radiographic isotopes and saw how long it took. It takes about six weeks. So a good ligament injury would generally take about six weeks to fully recover. So we base our mobilization treatments on to release those collagen cross-linkages if that's the underlying cause of the musculoskeletal condition you're dealing with. So you've got to make sure you kind of put that in context. So it's kind of the umbrella. Release those collagen cross linkages. It's going to take physiologically a cycle of around six weeks. So you work with those tissues over that six-week period of time. Uh, and then in, during that time, you also assist the neuromodulation of the joint receptors in that example of the, the first MP joint. And so that's another way that it's um, thought that it uh, helps aid the gait control theory of pain. and You get some of the um, symptomatic release there. Uh, but that's um, one of the key things is that um, like right now, all of us who are sitting and watching this, your connective tissues around your hip joint, around your knees, around the ankles, because of that flexed position, uh, are going to be adapting and shortening. So, um, the important thing here is to, I think is be clear on what your objective is. Uh, Ian, when you talk about muscle guarding, that's where that, the, the gentle and the, the neurological input, I think uh, has more of an effect. Um, I guess my focus has been on the, uh, collagenous tissue restrictions. And, uh, Given I am so butch and tough, uh, you know I like to do the the, the hard stuff. So. <laughs> Sorry. so, Chad, if you if you've got a, <clears throat> I'm interested in what you're saying from that
1: point of view. Um, if if you imagine you've got a situation whereby you've got a, a restricted uh, first rate in terms of its ability to a flex, um, mm-hmm. I mean, not, none of us are here trying to catch each other out. Right? We we're asking genuine questions. Um, would would you be looking? And let's, let's just say it's between MET one and two and it was a collagen, appears to be a collagen shorting. Yes. Is that something that you would look to use, um, that, that collagen release approach? Yep. I, I asked the question because, um, I think I understand where you're coming from there. Whereas for myself, um, I would be applying very, very little pores whatsoever, mm-hmm. uh, just a very gentle, Oscillation and allowing the ligaments, if I can, if that going to work that way, working it at its end at that particular point, gently teasing it down, gently teasing it up. So, if you wish, try and allow that tissue to come to its natural, extensible length. Yeah. That makes I, more
2: sense. I understand uh, what you're saying there. I don't think you can apply a um, to get those collagen cross linkages released you need to apply a reasonably significant force. So that's where I would be taking the joints to its uh, passive limits and then applying the force in the direction of correction. But if you're going to isolate uh, a joint, you know, say in the midfoot or even the forefoot, the crucial thing is looking at is that uh, the cause of the restriction or is that secondary to something else or some other compensation that's going on? And I think this is where uh, it behooves us to look at the whole kinetic chain and see what structures are influencing. Uh, because I love uh, picked up this great expression uh, that the Italian uh, therapists use. And it's that, uh, I've not heard it in English, but it might uh, also be in English. <laughs> but um, he who screams is not the guilty. Uh, I think it's how it translates. So basically where the, the symptoms are, that's the victim. But the guilty one, the cause, is actually coming from somewhere else. Uh, and that's and when we're dealing with uh, the foot and ankle structure, the, the complex uh, compensation patterns that occur. And uh, my old friend, and my, I always think that the, the first joint when we're dealing with foot and ankle and foot and leg uh, issues is uh, checking the center of the universe, which uh, translates in Latin to astragalus, which, of course, is the term, the name of the talus. So that's my plug for the talus and uh, focus on the talus first.
1: That's interesting. Um, so coming back to the idea then of the releasing and the cross linkages and level of force supply, I guess if I'm applying force to the example being um, the, the first and second metatarsal heads, um, or even second and third, and just a gentle oscillatory downwards and upwards uh, superior or inferior glide of that, but I get that range of movement. But I'm not applying a force or a level force that necessarily is releasing cross linkages. Yes. Uh, but I gain that. Coming back to to the to the area of the astragalus and the talus. Um, I can understand where you're coming from on, on maybe trying to work with the tailors, trying to improve quality range of movement within its various ranges and its directions of movement that go on. For me, I kind of, I kind of found, I guess, we're moving into that kind of discussion, meet, I suppose, that group wants, which um, for, for me, I found by looking at the more current models of foot function, at the nest level, the longer run. I've, I've moved away from the tailors as being the crucial, uh, pivotal thing in terms of understanding foot function. I mm-hmm. think um, it understands the relationship between the foot and the leg, and I'm no biomechanist, so you know the guys will shoot me down on that one. But as I've begun to look a bit more at Nestor Wolf Lundgren's work, looking at the levels of movement that may be occurring, it's redirected my thinking about what am I looking for passively, and it is a passive that you can't translate to active, I understand that. And I found myself moving away from the talus as being the key and crucial bit. For me now, tail and navicular, navicular medial cuneiform seem to be the more significant ones, followed often by the second metatarsal head. Um, now, I, I'm not saying that proves, this proves anything. But I think as I've looked at playing with the foot increasingly, it's made me, I've tried to take a more of that level of understanding of foot function. It's taken me increasingly, if you wish, away from the tailors itself. Don't get me wrong. I use it a lot, but it's not. It's no longer my focal point in assessing the for,
2: for, for conditions. Yeah. Okay. I um, from a, my clinical experience point of view, can I? Um, uh, I have still gone. Um, my focus is still on the, the talus just as okay. a result of my clinical experience, and so uh, and. and I'm open to change and um, I like, uh, Craig's well, you're uh, you're Twitter, where the evidence takes me. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, that, that's the, uh, this stage part of uh, my evidence base is literally my own clinical experience. Of, yeah. That's uh, fair enough. understand that one. understand that one.
1: Yeah.
0: Can I, can oh. I, uh, can I bring in the evidence base? Can we Tough talk time. a bit of evidence if that's okay. Um, my understanding of the evidence base that it's, it's, far poorer than we'd like it to be. And I know that's obviously the case with a mm-hmm. lot of things, but uh, I read a paper that suggested, I think it was uh, Bielowski, Joel Bielowski, yeah if I've pronounced that correctly. And it basically suggested, and it actually resonated with me given what we talked about two weeks ago with the pain science talk um, yeah. and then what we now know about pain. It resonated with me quite a lot. And that was that... The, the 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 force production the actual manual therapy sort of uh, initiates this cascade of, of sort of neurophysiological responses yeah and it's the it's the nervous system both central and or peripheral that's actually the reason why things work rather than us realigning repositioning you know changing the actual structure of something it's the nervous system and given what we know about pain that, that makes a lot more sense to me. So I
1: wonder what you both kind of thought about that. Joloski's mm-hmm. got two really quite useful papers, uh, and particularly on placebo. And I'm happy to put the, the titles of those papers up on, uh, on later on. Uh, well, one of them was more a comment review uh, that he, he put into something. And then the second one is a paper where a look quite closely at placebo and, and really looks at placebo as a very positive uh, influential, important part, perhaps, of any kind of treatment, but particularly within manual therapy, having a role. And and you're right, he it in his review article and also within the other paper, they discussed the idea of it being a potential winding up of the neurophysiological system. Um, so whilst I'm talking about tailor navicular, navicular you know, metacuneiform, I'm talking about assessing passive movement, where there is limitation. If I'm talking treatment, I'm talking about maybe taking the foot and its joints into, into a position where I can maximise as much neurophysiological feedback into the system as possible as part of the wind-up mechanism. Does so that make some sense to to try to address that? Um, and that's what mm-hmm. I found to be extremely helpful. Uh, similarly, kind of working at a level and pace, a slow pace that maybe has, uh, in that instance, uh, if it's possible, uh, a greater... Uh, impact upon the Ruffini corpuscles uh, rather than the Pacini ones. Ruffini being responding to long, slow, sustained stretch with a lateral movement glide towards it. That's really where my, my head's been going with all that, which is coming from your philosophy stuff, the neurophysiological stuff that's coming through, which I don't always understand. It's way above my head. And then obviously you've got your pain science stuff as well. So um, for me, yeah, I'm going to It's a neurophysiological thing, that's what we're working with. Um, it's the means and methods that we might do that. It's, 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 from our point of view as a manual therapist, is important. I, I'm not into aligning joints particularly um, because whatever I align passively may not necessarily stay there actively. Um, and necessarily, a tailors being put back into a particular position isn't necessarily always the case that it's going to solve the problem uh, because the tail can come out and the problem's still gone away. So from that point of view, I think there's a whole area of study and work to be done. Um, so I'm, sorry, I'm not – you know, the, the, placebo, the placebo question is a really good question uh, in the context of the neurophysiological change and what we're aiming at.
2: Great. So okay. I, I'm just uh, – yes, uh, if I can contribute a little here. Um, I, uh, I also have a, a premise that I work uh, with in using manual therapies, and that premise is this everything works best when it's in the right place. And I think that's a universal law for my desk here, as well as uh, the human body. Now, what is the right place? I know we have uh, a real challenge in, you know, if we're trying to quantify or mechanically say this position of 12 degrees and the axis is supposed to be here, That's uh, we're going to get ourselves into a lot of hot water here. However, if we think of each joint has a... um, a workable, each synovial joint will have a workable range. Uh, And if it's pushed to its uh, end limits, uh, it makes sense to me physiologically. That's where we're going to get a lot of um, the uh, clinical symptoms that occur uh, with our uh, patients that come seeking us uh, for help. And let me ask, for everyone who's watching, listening right now, have you ever in your life been sitting down at your desk Craig, this will be a good one for you. And you felt tension in the muscles in your neck or one side of your shoulder. Like, have you ever had that happen? Of course, we all have. What, from a neurophysiological perspective, my reasoning with that is. For some reason, the uh, and let's take um, you know if I can use the chiropractic word here, say that uh, <laughs> often the straight chiropractors will say, well, what's happening there is if there's a vertebra that's either stuck or out of position, there are working muscle fibers that are trying to pull or restore the position. And I think from a neurophysiological perspective, that's what often what happens: the body gets feedback from the mechanoreceptors. Uh, tells the brain, the brain says, okay, I'm going to get those muscles here to try and put things into a better or more efficient position, according to what the wisdom of the body knows, not uh, from an outside uh, um, scientific uh, research perspective. So you've got these working muscle fibers. What if those muscles are unable to generate sufficient force to say improve the position of that vertebra that's uh, responsible for that muscle tension. My view then is the only way that can be improved is from an outside force. And that's where mobilization or manipulation will can then work. Yesterday I had my regular chiropractic checkup and had that exact personal experience. I can't through exercise or stretching uh, get to the option She palpates my spine, feels those working muscle fibers, applies a force in the direction that the body's already trying to help itself. Now, I know this is kind of uh, to quantify this. This is more, uh, I guess we call it deductive reasoning, is that if the body's muscles are trying to pull things into this direction, uh, then let's work with that direction of correction because the body says this is going to be uh, the right place. Or a better place. But the difficulty we have with the foot and ankle is the muscle mass, the volume of muscle in relation to bones and collagenous tissues is so much less compared to what's happening up here. So I know, um, you know a good uh, therapist can palpate the muscles in, along the spinal column and they'll feel where the tension is and where muscles are relaxed. To do that in the foot and ankle, it's taken me years. And I don't think I'm uh, particularly wonderful at it because we just don't have the same uh, ability to, um, we don't have the muscles working as well to try and improve that position. And then when you've got the talus, which doesn't have any muscles attached to it anyway, what do we do there? Um, So I I may have uh, drifted off a little bit here, but I wanted to uh, just make that point that, we can look for the, uh, we try and quantify and get the evidence and the research that says, yes, uh, this working muscle theory um, uh, is, you know, we can quantify it. But if we think about it, we've all experienced those tensions in our body. What is actually going on here? And yes, you can release the muscle and give it some relief and you can give it some heat treatment or some stretch and massage, but if the cause of the problem is due to a a displacement or a shift or a a blockage of a certain uh, bone that the muscle is attached to, I'm not sure that you're going to get the best long-term result unless you release that uh, joint restriction or the underlying cause. And again, it comes from the underlying cause, and this is where it's like, how do we know what that underlying cause is? Well, I'm open to uh, assessment methods and uh, other people's experiences with that, because that, that's the that's the art, I think, of manual therapies, and where uh, good hands-on practitioners will use that the, uh, the tactile sense to determine that.
3: Yeah, how about, let, let me just jump in. I'm, I'm conscious of the time. We're, okay. We've gone uh, over 30 minutes already. Um, I, I know you've been emailed previously or messaged a couple of questions and, and we have had the exact same question posted by uh, by sean savage uh, so you i don't know if you want to address the sublux cuboid issue yep yep yeah what's definitely of, i mean what's one uh, of those yeah well good question so <laughs> I, I tell question. You, let's give
0: it a bit of background because you know we've all we've all talked about this we've all got <clears> previous <throat> discussion albeit not face to face and the, the issues I have with what's just been said, as well as what we're going to come on to say, is is this contention that, that we know we have this ability to know where, where individual bones should be, to have a good place and yeah. a bad place. Yeah. I agree with that. It's not supported by data whatsoever. No, it's not supported totally. by data, it's pretty strongly refuted uh, by both. Mm-hmm. By, you know, human variation is, is one, you know, one thing yep. that there's no, no disagreement on. So the other concern I've always had... And this applies to the cube but but everything is when well, we use this kind of language with patients, displacement, malalignment. It has this horrific nocebo effect, and we know that 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 pain is all about threat, perceived or real. And nocebic language is 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 a real uh, feeder into that. And when we when we hit, when we look at the hard time that Cairo's have had over the years for so kind of getting people back, that kind of business model that, that we give them a hard time on. Uh, I've certainly seen people uh, within the podiatry realms uh, adopt that. Not that I'm blaming the clinician. Sometimes it's patient led because you've made the patient feel so fragile, vulnerable, hypervigilant. They catastrophize. They're essentially, I, I guess, reliant, dependent. Um, and, and that for me, as I know, as you, you all know, is my, my main kind of concern with with this, this entire area. Now, when we come on to the cuboid, uh, I have two issues here. And the first is that, that bar huge singular impact, I refuse to believe that the vast majority of, of lateral midfoot pain that walks into the clinic is cuboid syndrome that requires manual therapy. And my concern is that I see people who just indiscriminately go straight to that as their go to before they've even got a diagnosis. But the other thing is you know we think about the cuboid and its articulations proximally and distally we think about its ligamentous uh sort of constraint we think about the the, the big tendons that the, that groove it yet we're happy to agree that or we, some of us are happy to agree that it's got this ability to move and sublux and, and be the cause of all pain yet there isn't a single bone on the medial column And you think about something like i guess time, it would either be uh, maybe navicular or medial cuneiform similar with their proximal distal articulations and their ligamentous orientation there's no discussion of any bones in the medial column doing this so i guess what i'd love from you two guys is where you sit on well i think we know but where you sit on cuboid and its ability to sublux if we believe it subluxes and this is causing pain why are we not considering this for medial midfoot pain? Because to my knowledge, <clears> the <throat> medial midfoot pain that comes in isn't manipped in the same way that the cuboid is. And secondly, what's the retort to what hopefully is a reasonable comment about this nocebic effect that we could be having if we're not careful with our language? Uh, Ian, you better go first,
1: or if we let Ted go, we'll run out of time. All right. <laughs> 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 Okay, I think I think you've got two things there, Ian. Uh, but first, I'm going to say to you, in terms of the cuboid, I think I did read a paper or an example with some x-rays a while ago, and I can't remember what it was, of what would appear to be in a sublux cuboid. So, yes, can it happen? Yes, it can, depending on the injury. It's something I think I've come across once, in, twice in, maybe in my career. The rest of the times, I've never come across it, and it's – it's one of those things I look to be as a surprise to me when it comes through rather than look for it. So I think there's the issue of the cue boy. Then the other one is, is the issue of of pain language uh, and, you know, how we set things up. So <clears throat> I agree with you. I never mentioned the word sublux to almost any patient. Uh, a, they don't know what it means. B, then you waste half your time trying to explain what it means. Mm. Uh, you catastrophize their experience. Uh, <clears throat> I think there are times when... I might use a language, it's almost very simple, I would like language, to kind of explain why there might be any some of their discomfort, and more often than not, I'm going to lay it in the the vicinity of a soft tissue concern rather than an actual and articulatory concern. Uh, So I'd try to use language that actually is very gentle, very simple, and and speaks of a very real possibility of something being changed. Uh, In terms of the actual cuboid subluxation, it's not something I've come across a lot. I do think it's overdiagnosed um, by by a lot of people. But I, I think that's because you know, one of the dangers of us. I'm not an educator, I'm a trainer. I know that because I went to Brighton University and said, should I do a PGCE in this? And they said, no, because you're not an educator, you're a trainer. So what I'm trying to train people up. I'm trying to train them up in some ways. It says, let's get rid of that language and let's not think about what's coming through as someone. Let's think about what else it could be. And if we train people up to think like that, hopefully we get less of our people who've gone through the system talking in language that catastrophizes and not pulling up on the idea of some looks all the time. Try to be very quick with that answer. Is that, is that okay? But pain, yeah. language, yeah. pain, science, very good. My background uh, is that I once was a vicar and you know, one of the things that we had to do in that the whole process was learn to be incredibly useful with our language. Uh, not necessarily articulate, but useful over that language. So for me, I find it interesting that the, uh, the, the Mike Mike's Mike Stewart's course, you've done that course too many times, Ian, by the sound of things, uh, <laughs> and the language of that course is actually, if you wish, it's it's almost reminiscent of language that we were being used back in the 80s when I trained, really quite interesting. So, yeah, i come all in favour of careful with language. Rare to see a sublux cuboid, but I do think they can actually get a bit stuck in their movements with stiffness there. It's probably more tissue. Does that help to answer the question? reaction right? yeah.
0: No. No. Absolutely. No. 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 Absolutely. I. I yeah. I appreciate okay. that. Okay. My turn. Go, yeah,
2: go on. <laughs> um, the first thing is uh, we haven't defined what subluxation is, uh, and Dorland's Medical Dictionary defines it as loss of relationship of articular surfaces. Uh, it happens all the time. Everywhere. I mean, just look at the, the hammer toes, claw toes, uh, bunions that come into your clinic or came into today. Um, the, uh, Griff, when you mentioned about, we, you know, we don't hear about uh, people talking about the bones on the uh, medial beam like we do with the cuboid. We do, but I think that's just <clears throat> notoriety and historically, I absolutely see um, the uh, navicular cuneiforms, uh, base of metatarsals, do I see them displace uh, from going to their end range position? Uh, every day. Every training we run, we always find people where there are blockages, restrictions, and through mobilization, we can immediately release that. So for me, the analogy I'll use, and uh, language with uh, patients, crucial. Anyone who uses the t- subluxation and, and any medical speak uh, is um, I think doing themselves and their patients a disservice the classic way that I would explain to a patient about what's happening with their joint uh, and if I felt that it was you know, being restricted at an end range position so imagine it's like a, a door you know that has able to swing but if your door is constantly slamming 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 against uh, its end position eventually the hinges suffer and eventually, you know, the frames, the architraves, things start um, perishing. And, you know, that's, I think it's important to educate patients so that they understand what is going on with their body. Now, that's from my perspective because I believe that joints get forced and put at their end position. And uh, when a joint's functioning at its end limits, that's where the uh, pathological forces occur on, particularly in the musculoskeletal structures. So um, yeah, it may be due to that philosophical background. That's why I would be very happy to uh, argue from a clinical experience perspective that particularly the bones in the midfoot uh, they shift and move and block. Every every one of those bones that you mentioned as well, like the cuboid in a normal foot should be able to move some three or four millimetres, and you should be able to feel that. Intermediate cuneiform moves about one or two millimetres when it's not restricted. So um, these are the... Yeah, to, to say that they don't move or they that they don't get stuck maybe if, i hope i'm not misinterpreting your uh, comments there griff but um they they do move they should move. they don't move much but they gotta move some and if they don't they dry out synovial fluid uh, dries up you get osteoarthritis and blah blah, blah. the whole sequence uh, of events takes place
0: ted 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 let me let me rudely interrupt you uh, and we talk again about the language you use and how patients respond to that language and, and, and the consideration from you being that medical language in terms like subluxation would be terrifying, but terms well, like bones being stuck, th- and th- doors slamming, and the word pushing you 've used there ultimately just, just just as like but just as likely, if not more I mean what we consider threatening language is, is, is sort of irrelevant because ultimately a lot of the words you 've used there would potentially terrify patients. And I think we now know how much that feeds into the pain mechanism. And and just to clarify, I'm not suggesting that manual therapy doesn't have a place, nor am I suggesting it doesn't work. If we define is how we define work. It's the mechanism of effect I think is interesting for me. And I think we just Mm. don't have the data to support this realignment and repositioning, but the hands-on work, the the careful use of language, the reduction of threat and the central nervous system, that, for me, is, is close <clears throat> to being believable. But what concerns me is that isn't always the angle that people are taking. And, and I think sure. if we're not careful, we, we, we have a very real ability by telling people we need to, you know, you're stuck or we need to move you or reposition you. We've got a very real ability to send people toward mm-hmm. chronic pain or persistent pain rather than away from it.
2: Yeah, it's not been my experience. Um, I've found that that simple concept of, you know, something's supposed to move and it doesn't move as well as it should. So we're going to work on getting it moving again. Um, I, from my own personal clinical experience, I've actually found that uh, somewhat liberating from a, a patient's perspective. It's like, ah, well, that makes sense. Uh, and then... Uh, adopt or recommend whatever treatment plan to uh, deal with that. Certainly acknowledge that there's so much we don't understand about and, and the the languaging and what happens inside clinics, crucial area. I fully acknowledge that. Um, uh, I'm not saying uh, I am I'm an expert in that area by any means, just based on my uh, personal experience in dealing with a lot of chronic uh, cases. Uh, our clinics are known for getting the cases that have been everywhere else I haven't tried this so um yeah I, I think uh, yeah, a, that's what I have to say about that
1: griff i think I think you're
0: you're flagging Craig. up uh, uh Craig anything that's coming Craig. from how are we doing for time firstly uh, anything that's coming from Facebook that's urgent to uh, address
2: no
3: oh, sorry, I just had my mute button on because the dogs were barking again um. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Just move on to the next question. Ian. There's nothing really come through on Facebook. Lots of just comments, but no no questions to pursue. Oh, I'm scared of looking okay. at the <laughs> comments later on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how how are we doing? How are we doing for time? Probably another another
3: ten minutes. Yeah, can I just uh, can I just kind of come
1: in because um, I, I'm going to put a question to myself, really, um, which is. After many years of working in, in manual therapy and you know joint mobilization, manipulation, soft tissue work, all the various things that I've done, uh, one of the big challenges I think is facing us as clinicians and the questions that rightly asked is where does it fit within the healing remit of of, of what we're charged with within our profession? And I uh, I think one of the big challenges to us as practitioners and anybody who trains is um, we, we're no longer really dealing with Joints and tissues. We're dealing with something far more whole, and mm-hmm. particularly involving significantly the brain, the nervous system, the the, the precepts that people coming with. And I I want to flag up a, a paper that I think is really very very helpful. Uh, it's by Gary Fryer. Uh, some people may not have seen it. Some may have seen it. 2017 publication. It's uh, and I'll pop, I'll pop it on onto the comments later on. It's two papers in which he looks at this whole discussion that we've been having about the role of manual therapy you know, within the biopsychosocial model. And you know the, the thing we've got to bear in mind is I, I encourage people to use manual therapy, but actually it's just a small part of the big overall healing picture. And, and you know, if you take it at that level, you can actually enjoy using it and doing it. If you actually try and elevate it to something bigger than that or elevate it to being the answer to, to what's presenting or the answer, then I, then I think that's where we, we, we actually encourage problems within our profession of its use. Um, and so to kind of give it a proper place, which is just, you know, a, a maybe bottom-up place, um, I think is really quite important. And the chance of the question I'm asking myself is how well do I do that when I'm involved in training people? How well do I expose people to, to thinking about the biopsychosocial model in what I'm doing? And get them to recognise that's the much bigger and more important model rather than the model that I might present of actually intervention.
2: I think uh, it's important that uh, as uh, clinicians, we're very clear on what the indications and uh, applications uh, are of uh, um, the any any treatment service that we provide, uh, and so it's particularly as far as manual therapies go, uh, we want to make sure that uh, we are applying it where it's indicated and appropriate. Uh, I think one of the big frustrations that um, uh, I certainly had uh, in my early days was that. Uh, a patient would come to me and I would, you know, if they have a musculoskeletal condition, I'd provide a treatment that I was taught uh, at uh, university and not getting the desired clinical outcomes or the results that uh, I felt like I should be delivering. And so then uh, I used to do a lot of referring to uh, physios, chiropractors, and manual therapists. And heck, I'm the foot guy. Why can't I do that stuff? And uh, I think uh, it uh, would be really... I think it's essential for podiatrists, if you're going to be the person that people go to for their foot, ankle problems, then, uh, geez, manual therapies ought to be in your armory or to be one of the tools you have in your toolbox. Uh, I agree, it's, it's not the the be-all and end-all, it's not the silver bullet, uh, but it's a heck of a useful treatment tool, particularly if you're using a lot of orthotic therapy and you're, uh, you've got cases where um, there's... Uh, supination resistance and, and that's happening because of uh, connective tissue adaptations because they always adapt to their shortest functional length and the body's been functioning like that all of its life or they've uh, sprained their ankle or they're working as teachers, nurses, uh, factory workers. Heck, uh, the, the, the role of manual therapies it literally it, it transformed and revolutionized my clinical experience, my uh, clinical direction. Yes, I'm an advocate. Yes, I'm biased with it. But I think I've got uh, some uh, history uh, and track record to justify, certainly in my own mind. And I've got to live with my own mind, and that's a hard enough battle. Isn't it? So, uh, <laughs> we're, yeah. just, just, we're just about out
3: of time, so I'm, I'm going to just ask one like, practical question at the end. Um, I'm far from being any sort of expert in the, the manual therapies and, and but did use what limited skills I had. But one, one particular clinical scenario that I actually found really, really useful was those patients who came in uh, 10 years after an ankle sprain and they've got some pain somewhere, you, you, you struggle to work out what it was. But I always found mobilizing them, not necessarily a full thrust manipulation, really seemed to work really well on those sorts of people. So, you know, by way of winding up. So I just want to get any practical tips for dealing with those 10 year post ankle sprains that re- present with some uh, pain and, and, and then not two are the same. Yeah. So you can't exactly build up any experience in dealing with it. All right.
2: That. I'm going to stand up and talk about this one because this is absolutely <laughs> a, a, a classic. Um, what, what you described there, Craig. I'm just glad you
1: got trousers on, mate. I'm just <laughs> glad you got trousers on.
2: Well, shit, I had to double check. <laughs> um, but the thing about... Uh, so that's a classic. That is, in my opinion, where the talus shifts or displaces, and then people adapt their activities and all the tissues adapt to it. It doesn't take much to literally reset uh, a talus to improve its uh, mechanical position. Keeping the bloody thing there is uh, a fair bit of work, but that that's... Um, I would... I would say our um, practitioners would see that multiple times every day, or certainly with all new patients. That's why we focus on uh, the, the talus so much, is because when you have an inversion sprain, the ATFL it gets affected over 90% of the time, and that's the key ligament that maintains the integrity of the, the position of the talus. Uh, you, you've absolutely got to check uh, with that. So, um, Craig, I think what you're doing is just uh, providing the clinical observation uh, and uh, evidence for why uh, mobilization of the talus and the ankle, including the fibula and uh, the related uh, structures is so important for podiatrists because we see a lot of those chronic cases.
1: Okay. So, um, cause I know we're running out of time here. So lateral ankle sprain is, is a ankle joint complex injury. It's not a talocrural joint injury. Um, it involves the various muscles, tissues, ligaments, fascia, nerves—all the way. Runs all the way through that. Um, so, sort of, you know, certainly there can be an improvement in stride speed, step set speed, stride length. All these things have been demonstrated in some of the research papers going back. If you actually can improve that through mobilisation work or manipulation work, the thing about the lateral ankle sprain it is very much a neurophysiological uh, oh, as well target. Hmm target that you've got to work at. And I think although you might talk about resetting the talus, um, maybe it's resetting the subtalar joint. I can't, I, can't, I can't use the language resetting um, because once you start to move, you've got multi-plane all movements going on in the ankle joint complex, which is including the talus and including the navicular. And then knocking it down further onwards. So, for me, lateral ankle injury is actually almost a whole foot and a low leg injury. I so, agree. I need to work with all those, those tissues, and which is why, the, yeah, the tailors can be important, but actually, maybe, maybe that, that ankle sprain restricted navicular movement. And that's the reason yep. why the tail isn't going. So, it, it, okay. I'm coming back to the language and th- 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 that we're using again. And I think, <clears throat> um, you know, whatever I might do joint wise, it is going to be a very small amount. Having said that, I agree with you that you can stimulate neurophysiological feedback. Um, <clears throat> very simple little tip is once you've had somebody with a lateral ankle injury and you want to improve some of that movement, that feedback, some some firm, gentle, firm work uh, into, of soft tissue work into the sinus tarsi seems to have a significant stimulating response. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly part of it, but actually, overall, all of that will be the huge amount of rehabilitation, exercise, and strengthening work. That's yep. what's going to keep in place. Um, yep. That's where I'll be coming from on that one. Really, I love it. I love, I love working with stuffed ankles. Really, mm, yes. I don't like having a stuffed ankle, but I love working with stuffed ankles. Is that helpful? Was that answering the question, Craig?
3: It does, thanks. Yeah, no, I think that that that's one thing where I found it particularly useful um, clinically. But I think we, we've been going for fifty-five minutes. Time flies. We haven't got close to what we wanted to get to. Mm. Um, so I think we might there's have a
1: lot of people be more. Up that's the main thing. <clears throat> yeah.
3: But for those that I noticed, those, there's quite a few people joining up late. So if you come back in twenty or so minutes, the full video will be on on Facebook uh, later on today, Australia time. We'll have it up on YouTube. So please head over to YouTube and give us a subscribe and, and, um, our new websites up. So you can sign up for our email list and which will fire out emails when we're about to go live. So thanks to Ian and Ted for joining us. It's again, I'm just sorry that we haven't actually, that we've just scratched the surface. We haven't really got to a lot of what yeah, thanks guys. We want to, yep, we, thanks we, probably, yep. we probably could have gone on for quite a few hours and I see Robert Isaacs has just posted. I could listen to this for hours. <laughs> um, he needs oh, to get. Yeah,
0: I think that's more of a narrative on Robert than it is on. on <laughs> else.
3: Well, I, I, I did see. I did see you posted something early on today that he actually had to day
2: off work, so he's probably got nothing to do. Um. <laughs> let me just say uh, uh to craig and uh, griff thank you very much for creating this mm. environment to have this uh, type mm. of exchange and discussion within our profession i think it's fantastic and really feel honored uh, that uh, to have been asked um I, I totally understand ian being asked but uh, i feel very uh honored <laughs> thank you very much for for uh, the opportunity to be able to share hopefully contribute to our colleagues
3: okay well thanks everyone we'll... thanks